90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm alive. How about you? <laughs> about the same. You know, we had semi-blizzard conditions and high winds, some snow. It's been a lot of fun out here. Uh, yeah, we had to hightail it out of Iowa um, because of the blizzard that was impending. And um, we made it out with about eight hours to spare. And um, my in-laws got 12 inches. And just south of them, some of our friends got over 20 inches. So that was exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of wish I would have stayed, though. It was like 55 degrees on Thanksgiving there, which is, you know, normal Oklahoma winter. But they were all, like, flabbergasted. They'd never had that kind of weather before. It was pretty funny. <laughs> nice, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, so you were on the road. And so... Uh, like many shows, we did not have a show last week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. <laughs> yeah. But we are going to resume probably in the next week with some of our Paleo Climate series. But this week, we want to talk about some breaking news. Right. Exactly. How exciting is it? I love it when we get to do breaking news episodes. And of course, that breaking news has to do with us putting yet another piece of our space junk up on Mars. <laughs> Yeah, so Mars InSight landed this week, and it is the long-awaited mission for geophysicists. <laughs> oh, but it's so boring, John. It just sits in one spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it can tell you a lot about the internal structure of the planet. Oh, it can. I can't wait to talk about some of these instrumentations. Um, I want to know, too, like, who gets to sit around and make all these cool videos, like, for the press and for... <laughs> for release on how these instruments work i mean everything works so nice right it sits down it unfolds itself it does all this cool stuff and i just want the public to know that science is never that that simple (laughs) yeah (laughs) there's always some dumb thing like some rock is in your way of your you know thermal probe or something like that (laughs) oh yeah in fact one of the instrument scientists that i saw interviewed uh after the landing had happened they said, you know, this went better than I ever dreamed it would have. <laughs> <laughs> it was really exciting. Um, I, I tuned in, you know, when they started doing coverage online, so about an hour beforehand, and, and listened to everybody in the background while I was grading papers, of course, because that's all I do with my life <laughs> is grade papers. Um, and it was real cool. Jim Bridenstine, uh, the director of NASA, is from Oklahoma. He's actually from not very far away from where I live. So that's really exciting. He was just at OU a couple of weeks ago, um, and we went and saw him talk, and he was really excellent. And I'm super excited about his work there, and I think most people there are too. Oh, absolutely. Um, and just, like you said, listening to the loops and all of the communication going on as this thing was starting to approach Mars and do the landing phase was really interesting and of course there's always that you know they say the seven minutes of terror where (laughs) in in real life it is either sitting on the surface or it's a crater but because of the light travel time we don't know yet so it's schrodinger's (laughs) mars probe (laughs) exactly is it alive is it dead is it on its side just flailing its mechanical legs in the air (laughs) right (laughs) 
Oh, it's so great. Um, did you also notice all the good luck peanuts, which I think are fantastic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there was also, there were a couple of the uh, the flight control team that had clearly planned out this super complicated, elaborate handshake, <laughs> high five, dance move. Ah, uh, yeah. That was, was awesome. It was pretty good. <laughs> Oh, man. I feel like this is like science's Golden Globes, you know? We're like, oh, man, did you see this? Did you see this? <laughs> They're on display for the whole world to watch. Um, but this is a really big deal, and the U.S. is getting really good at this stuff. Yeah. I mean, granted, every space agency has bounced several expensive probes off <laughs> Mars, including us. Us not. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> us notwithstanding. <laughs> We've got some uh, duds up there, too. <laughs> Yeah, but so this one, I heard several, I mean, they're very minor technical inconsistencies, but several things that the press reported, I was like, well, (laughs) not really. Yeah. And there were also some confusion uh, with units, not in the landing (laughs) software. We've already had that debacle. Yes, yes, we have. uh, (laughs) But, you know, somebody had said, well, this is a 700 pound probe. It's like. No, it's seven hundred kilograms. It's more like fourteen or fifteen hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of that going around, but I guess the place that I want to start is how this thing actually entered the Martian atmosphere and landed. Before we start there, you're talking about confusion with units. You know, the kilogram got redefined last week too. So. Oh, it did. We have to do it. We have to do a show on that as well. <laughs> Okay, I figured you you knew about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's really interesting. So speaking of units, um, but this guy, I mean, did they they use the same technology that they used before that they've used before, or it was something different? So it was similar. The lander itself borrowed a lot from another mission that landed in a polar region, mm-hmm. right. uh, but this landed at a very low latitude for right. a couple of reasons. Right. I mean, the main one is. Because it's a, as you said, why you're so excited about it. I mean, it's a stationary seismic instrument primarily. And so you want to land on a nice flat spot to stick your seismometer, right? Right. In fact, uh, somebody had said that this was like Kansas, but without the corn. <laughs> uh, so, But with the it, sunflowers? It, no. Yes. <laughs> no. So it's, it's really flat, uh, but also closer to the equator. You get more solar radiation coming in for your solar panels because Mm -hmm. these are energy-intensive instruments. And this thing was big and heavy. And for part of the the early part of the entry phase, it used aerobraking, which is a fancy way to say we put a heat shield up and turned into a comet going across the sky. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, you get the friction from the atmosphere, generates heat on the heat shield and produces drag and slows the craft. If you land somewhere on really high terrain, you just lost that much more atmosphere to help slow you down. Mm, okay, so you want to land at a low elevation and close to the equator for power. Ah, I did not even think about that. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Uh, so it came in the atmosphere, did the aerobraking for a little bit, uh, then a supersonic parachute deployed. I mean, it's going really fast when they deploy this parachute. Um because you think, okay, they deploy a parachute, whatever. But, I mean, it's going hundreds of kilometers an hour, right? And then you're going to stick a parachute out. So this isn't just a normal, we're opening this parachute. Like, a lot more work goes into this, right? 
Oh, yeah, I mean, they're pushing a thousand kilometers an hour. Right. I knew it was pops. super fast. And so, yeah, you know, that is not how fast you're going when you jump out of an airplane. <laughs> oh, no. Um, <laughs> there's some pretty cool videos of wind tunnel testing mm-hmm. on some of these parachutes. Yeah. And some really awesome failure modes. Yeah, there are. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's something that you don't, you have to think about every tiny little bit of this. It's not as easy as, you know, let's just throw out a parachute. Great. Okay. Right. So then it parachutes, the heat shield drops off, and then when it gets relatively close to the ground, the lander actually drops out of the shell that's being supported by the parachute. And free falls for a second, and then some retro rockets kick on. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And I mean, you want all those, all those rockets to kick on because you don't want to wind up belly up right there, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be terrible to make it that far. <laughs> and while these rockets are going down, I mean, it's it's recording this too, right? This this bad boy's got a camera. Uh, so it didn't record video of the descent. Oh, just pictures, huh? And it actually, there are no pictures until after landing. What? I yep. thought I saw one right before it landed. Oh. Mm. No descent pictures. And this doesn't only have two cameras. It's primarily a geophysical instrument. Yeah, I know. So it's got two cameras that are, I think they're 1024 by 1024 pixels. Jeez. It's, it's not made to take pretty pictures. Uh, of course. So just more ridiculous seismic stuff that no one can understand. <laughs> <laughs> i i see i see what's happening oh i think i re- i didn't realize how tall it was so these pictures look like they're from a higher elevation than i would have expected that was um that was something too it's a lot bigger than i thought it would be if the solar panels deployed it's about 20 feet across right yeah i've seen you know pictures of it for a long time and it wasn't until i looked it up where they were actually working on it and i'm like oh yeah that's a big honky instrument Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it did its landing thing, and then it snapped a picture. Uh, there is a dust cover on the lens, which is why you saw a bunch of junk mm-hmm. in the first picture that came back. Yeah. And then after they land and everything shut off, then they popped the dust cover off and took the nice picture that we've all seen today. Right, yeah. Uh, which we're recording a couple days before release. But it's definitely worth going to the the NASA website, going to the mission page, and they upload the pictures there as they get them in raw form. Gosh, that's so crazy and so different than way back in the day. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. Um, So this big guy sets down, and then it (laughs) uses this awesome arm to (laughs) place its little stuff, right? (laughs) Yeah, and this hasn't been done yet. Yeah, this is awesome. So it it will happen over the next probably month or so. They have to look around. The arm only has a certain area it can reach, Mm -hmm. so they have to decide where in that area they're going to put the sensors to make sure that they get good placement. Which is why I would think you'd need a better camera. Well, so there's a camera on the arm, and there's a camera on the lander. Mm -hmm. But 1024, I mean, that's far higher resolution than some of the early cameras we put up there. Yeah, I guess that's true. That is really true. Um, So it's sat down, and what is it going to do next? So after they do a bunch of health checks and that kind of thing, it is going to place two instruments on the ground. Okay. And so these are the size instrument and the HP cubed instrument. Right. Which, uh, this thing looks awesome. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty excited about, uh, well, both. The size is a seismometer. It's going to give us lots of cool data. Uh, the HP Cubed instrument is awesome engineering. Yeah. But <laughs> here's another piece that I kept hearing reported of. This is the first seismometer on Mars. And no, no, it's not. Who else has one? Viking. The oh. Viking probes had seismometers. Oh, no kidding. Nice. Now, they were relatively useless. Yeah, because uh, they were sucky or what? <laughs> well, so they were mounted to the vehicle. Ah, so you didn't have coupling with the ground. So you had coupling through landing legs that had shock absorbers. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Which, at low frequencies, probably not a huge deal, but th there was that factor. And then you had Viking that was reaching out and scooping up material and doing mechanical processes to it. And the whole frame was vibrating during all these processes. Oh, okay. Uh, so, in fact, I think to move some of the soil in the instruments, they actually had like little vibrating trays even. So <laughs> you had this seismometer on something that was semi-isolated from the ground and sometimes vibrated. And the seismometers held up off the ground in a windy environment. It's fine. <laughs> uh, that's a beautiful amount of noise. That's wonderful. Right. So we didn't really get anything useful mm -hmm. from those instruments, but this is not the first seismometer on Mars. Gotcha. Well, uh, it's the first one on it, directly on it. Okay. <laughs> there, there you, you go. go. <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah, the little arm is going to set the size instruments out, mm -hmm. and we heard some about this at the Iris meeting I was just at. Mm-hmm. And then it sets a little wind dome over it. <laughs> I saw this. It's real cute. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a collapsible, uh, you know, it looks like somebody hacked apart an accordion. Yes, exactly. Here's your seismometer served under silver. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that was pretty funny. But, I mean, it needs that on Mars just for those same reasons you were just talking about the other seismometer, right? I mean, it's really windy there really dusty and so you don't want that to affect your seismic readings because i imagine this one's much more sensitive than the one on viking yeah so i mean this is sort of a typical broadband oh, uh, okay when when they were testing it they made a big deal out of so they tested it in littleton colorado actually oh, nice. uh, <laughs> and when they were testing it here they made a huge deal out of being able to see the micro seisms from waves breaking on the pacific coast oh my goodness okay uh i mean which is you know sort of it, I hate saying that that's like typical broadband performance now uh, <laughs> because that sounds so condescending to the amazing amount of engineering that went into these. Right, yeah. And it's not how I mean it all. These are amazing instruments, both terrestrial and extraterrestrial. Mm -hmm. uh, right. It's but just, it's it's in line with what we can do It's now. not new technology specifically for Mars. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's that instrument, and that shield helps also with some thermal insulation. You're still going to have wind noise because you've got this big, huge bird sitting by you. Yeah. Catching <laughs> yeah, wind. Sure. Um, so this thing is going to, I mean, it's going to go on the ground. And what are we expecting to hear? Because we don't know. I mean, the whole point of this Mars Insight is... We don't know a lot about the interior structure of Mars. And this is really exciting because as we went through the solar system series, 
that was a recurring theme. We have ideas about what we think the tectonic workings of these extraterrestrial bodies are, but they're really just models. You know, we can look at the surface all day long, but this is the first time we're actually going to probe the surface, literally. Right. So we have some ideas about what the tectonics look like from orbital gravity, and we sort of have some ideas about the core from rotation studies. Right. But, yeah, we have no idea seismically what they look like. We also don't know if they're Mars quakes. <laughs> That's real funny. <laughs> uh, I mean, we sort of expect them. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe thermally, maybe tectonic, but we expect something. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there was a lot of, well, I don't know. We don't know about what we're going to see down there in terms of there was a lot of volcanic activity on Mars. So, you know, there's probably a lot of fractures and stuff. Yeah, and I mean, some of that volcanic activity was recent in geologic timescales. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason to think that there might not be some processes going on deep down that are still generating uh, events. Right. So that's one thing. And we also expect to hear on the order of several hundred meteorite impacts every year. That's so exciting. I never thought about that. I never thought about that's what we would hear. That's so cool. So the nice thing about that is, even if there aren't Mars quakes, we have active source seismic randomly distributed across <laughs> the globe. How cool is that? <laughs> that's right. You just never know when it's going to happen. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which isn't a problem with you know the amount of data storage we can have now, right? Well, and so here's the other cool thing. Uh -huh. I, I hear some people screaming, but it's only one seismometer. You need a, multiple seismometers to learn anything. Okay. And that's just not true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there are some really cool processing techniques now that actually let you locate earthquakes with one seismometer. That's crazy. So you do the math spherically. Okay. Uh, which, so you have a source somewhere on a globe, and waves propagate through the globe and around the outside of the globe, so surface waves, body uh -huh. waves. And by looking at the time of arrival of all of these different phases and taking into account the geometry that they have to be going around the globe and through it, you can actually determine where they were. So you're saying I can throw out my compass and I don't have to use that on any of those <laughs> earthquake <laughs> triangulation labs anymore <laughs> right <laughs> i mean it's not going to be as good clearly mm -hmm. uh, as having multiple stations but we can do it and get a pretty good idea and there are some simplifying it to that level is glossing over a lot of the subtleties of this <laughs> technique that have been developed and i actually really want to get a couple of the people that worked on these techniques on the show mm -hmm. yeah that would that would help make this um more sense when we're talking about these instruments, for sure. Uh, one other thing that we've talked about before is using seismic <laughs> signatures of tornadoes. And while there aren't tornadoes as such on Mars, there are really big dust devils. It's true. Uh, mm -hmm. And we did look at a paper a while back from our uh, one of our favorite fun paper authors, Ralph Lorenz, yes. looking at <laughs> tilt on seismometers from dust devils in the desert mm -hmm. with this mission in mind. Right. So there you go. Um, that's really cool. <laughs> I didn't want to say the words, you know, we're looking for active magma processes, but I mean, NASA says it right here on their website. So 
that's real crazy. Oh, yeah. And yeah. obviously, just like we figured out the structure of the interior of Earth, you know, we'll know if there's large amounts of liquid water beneath the surface with this seismometer too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so it makes a difference in terms of the attenuation. Mm-hmm. So are you on a, a dry or a wet planet, is it going to ring for a long time like the moon does where you have a, a moon quake and it rings for up to an hour or more? That's awesome. Or is it going to attenuate very quickly? Mm-hmm. Right. So this is, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for this to to start getting data back. <laughs> oh, I, I'm super excited as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. But then there's the HP cubed instrument. Yeah. Now this thing is... <laughs> Super cool to watch the video about for sure. <laughs> and so this is looking at uh, heat flow and physical properties probe, which is the HP cubed part, right? And it's really cool because it's this little bullet that you're going to shove down below the surface of Mars. Right. And it's not really a bullet. Like the way this thing works is pretty snazzy. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it looks like a big bullet, yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't yeah. go down all at once. You're right. <laughs> so you've got this thing that is, I think it's a neighborhood about 30 inches long, mm-hmm. and inside it has a spring and a, a ramp mechanism and a weight, and pretty much the motor lifts this weight up the ramp, compressing the spring, and then it falls off a cliff. So it wham and makes a hammering motion at the bottom. And so this is a self-driving nail. That's so cool. Uh, I remember when I first saw this um, last week, I was watching, you know, the instrument videos, and I thought, what? How is this thing doing this? That's awesome. Because it's going to go down about five meters, obviously, in order to figure out these heat flow and physical properties, right? But it's not going to go all at once. It's going to drive itself, taking measurements at different locations along the way. And the cable that it pulls down behind it has temperature sensors every 10 centimeters. That's beautiful. Uh, so I, it blows my mind that this could go up to 16 feet into the soil. Yes. Yeah. I really hope it doesn't hit something and stop soon. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, if you try to do this in Arkansas or Oklahoma, you'd make it about a foot. Oh, yeah. If, uh. if that even. <laughs> so yeah that would be terrible i mean because all we've we've scraped stuff off the surface several times but that's only like an inch or two so this is i mean and probably a couple inches if you're talking about you know rover tire treads so this is really cool and obviously modeling the heat flow is going to be important for understanding what we're seeing with the seismometer too absolutely yeah Hmm. So there's that instrument, which is a snazzy piece of engineering. But then there are several other instruments that haven't really got a lot of press. No, those are really just the big ones. Are you talking about the the radio science stuff? Well, so there's some radio science stuff. There is a retroreflector that will reflect lasers from future orbiters. So even after this thing has quit working, this is just a big lens uh, that will reflect laser back and so they can do ranging and all kinds of stuff using this as a target that's an awesome afterthought right (laughs) like how are you going to use the dead body of this thing when it's done that's great oh yeah 
I mean, that's super great. Like, that's, you know, that makes your rate of return way more since you're going to be able to use this as a data point for everything else flying around Mars. Oh, yeah. And there is talk of eventually making a Mars geophysical network, which this would be a node in that, in terms of locating it and that kind of thing. Mm, I was thinking of Mesonet, since you've got some soil temperature going on already. <laughs> well, and, and it does have temperature and wind. It does have, yeah, it does have little weather instruments on it, too. So, mm-hmm. and so it's called the, the Twins Instrument, Temperature and Winds for Insight. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I mean, it probably isn't positioned wonderfully to be the first mars mesonet data but there it is <laughs> yeah uh it's got of course the instrument deployment arm the the two cameras the instrument context camera and the instrument deployment camera mm-hmm. and then it's got the radio experiment which i think is really cool yeah so what's that gonna do so it's called rise mm-hmm. and i believe it is the only u.s produced instrument on this wow other than the cameras okay uh so we didn't make the seismometer uh we didn't make the heat flow package and we didn't make twins Mm -hmm. and we didn't make the retro reflector okay uh (laughs) (laughs) but we're gonna do this old school radio stuff great (laughs) yeah so there's an x-band radio on the lander and they can track this x-band radio signal very precisely Mm -hmm. so like a two centimeter resolution nice uh, through using some of the Doppler techniques that we talked about in our solar system series. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so they can not only get the spin axis direction and rate and some things like that that we already know from other instruments. Right. Uh, but they're actually be going to be able to get the nutation. And so that is... <laughs> so that's important just in terms of orbital mechanics, but it also tells you a lot about the structure of the interior of that body because what it's made up of in the very center is going to affect the wobble as it rotates around. Right. So we should be able to get like some density bounds and some thickness bounds on the mantle and the core. Right. And so that's important because do you have a liquid core? Do you have a solid core? Is it iron? Is it something else? Right. And they also used, I believe it was this radio, during descent. It's uh, another thing I heard some news people say was, we have no idea what's happening until it lands and it sends an I'm okay beep. And that was not true and... either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so by looking at it, the whole time it was descending, it was transmitting telemetry at something like 8 kilobits a second. Mm. It was pretty low. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also just sending out a constant carrier. And by looking at the Doppler shift of that carrier, we could calculate the speed of the spacecraft. So they could see, just in the Doppler shift of the carrier, okay, the parachute's deployed, and now we're decelerating at an expected rate, so we know the parachute fully deployed. Right. Gotcha. So they knew more about what was going on. Yeah. But for that last little bit when the retro rockets are firing, yeah, it's all happening pretty fast, and you're going to crater or land in a few seconds right yeah exactly but not just flying blind right yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) just drop it and hope for the best (laughs) oh that's awesome so this was also accompanied by two other robots Uh uh-oh what are these little guys so these are called marco 
<laughs> A and B. Okay. <laughs> and they stand that stands for Mars Cube One. Okay. And these are CubeSats. They wanted to test if CubeSats can work in interplanetary missions. So what are they doing with them? Where are they at? So these CubeSats are around Mars now. They okay. traveled uh, pretty much with InSight mm-hmm. and then went on a little bit separate trajectory here. And they're actually what is relaying the data back. Wow, really? Okay. Yeah. So they're going. Uh now, we are getting the data. There are some other orbiters that are in sort of store and forward mode. Mm-hmm. So every time they orbit over InSight, they grab the data. And then the next time they're in a favorable position to transmit that data to Earth, they forward it to us. Because we didn't know if these were going to work. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't want to get there and not be able to talk to it. But, I mean, these are 6U CubeSats. So CubeSats, uh, you know, are these little boxes that are basically 4 inches or 10 centimeters on a side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this is a 6U one. So it's eight wide, uh, eight inches wide, two units, and then three units long. So they're small. They're really small and Mm -hmm. relatively inexpensive. But they really, if you watch the animation of these things unfolding, it's amazing. Uh, (laughs) Like solar panels unfold, a huge panel pops up out of the back that actually turns out to be the reflector for the high gain antenna. A little Mm -hmm. thing pops out of the front. That's the feed horn for the high gain. It's really a pretty sophisticated design that's to pack all of this in a tiny space. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, we've got tons of these up around Earth right now. Oh, yeah. 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 So. But we've never put a CubeSat out this far or tried to transmit and receive this far with them. That's awesome. But they, they were pretty much a planned failure uh, <laughs> of in terms of we did not need them to work at all to get all of the data back from right. InSight. It was purely right. experimental. But thus far, they're working great. Uh, that's awesome. That's super awesome. So we've junked up our our space neighborhood. So we're going to going to the neighbors and junking up theirs. Yeah, <laughs> it's gonna be covered in CubeSats before long. And I just, I really can't get over. If you go, I encourage you to go to the Wikipedia page. I'll link it in uh, the show notes. This is something that is 8 inches by 12 inches by 4 inches. The little CubeSats? Yeah. It, when it launched, that was the size of it. It's like a briefcase. <laughs> and it unfolded and is transmitting data back from Mars. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty sweet. Uh, so engineering's awesome. Yeah. Uh, that... Mm-hmm. They do look like flying briefcases. <laughs> yeah. Man, those panels are huge, too. Mm-hmm. Oh. I mean, if, so they unfold. Uh, let's see. It's one, two, three, four, five. So it looks like six layers of unfolding that happened there. Oh, man. That's really scary. Spacecraft designers always amaze me with their ability to get electronic origami yeah to work every time exactly like where did you stick all those shields <laughs> that's impressive <laughs> <Yeah>. like <laughs> that's real impressive okay yeah you get you really do gotta look at the pictures of these <laughs> hmm. so yeah that's and i i will say insight has an awesome mission logo yeah yeah it's pretty sweet I saw several of the flight controllers in the InSight polos, and then in one of the interviews, I saw somebody in an InSight t-shirt. And if anybody works 
in <laughs> in this field and can get their hands on some insight t-shirts we would be forever in debt to you yeah absolutely <laughs> we sure would we'll send you stickers right. <laughs> all the stickers you want <laughs> yeah it is pretty sweet i will say that so i'm really excited to see what data we get back from these missions because we're going to know just with the first few impacts or the first few Mars quakes, we're going to know more about the structure of Mars than we've learned in the last 40 years. Yes, exactly. You just need one. Oh, yeah. This is real exciting. So when does everything come online then? It's how far out? I, I believe the timeline pending nothing going wrong in startup is month to months. Okay, that's what... Before everything's deployed. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then once they do get the seismometer out there, there's going to be a little bit of time for it to get thermally equilibrated and things, so it'll be a little drifty in there. Yeah. But I'm sure there will be events in that drifty period, and somebody will spend all weekend, one weekend, figuring out how to remove enough of the drift to get good data. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yep. So many master's theses coming down the pipe. <laughs> oh, yeah. And there's also a lot of... You know, you don't think about the little engineering things here. The cable that unfolds to connect the seismometer to the spacecraft, so it's already connected, and then this cable has to unfold as the arm is lifting it off and moving it. Mm-hmm. So you can't get a tangle in the cable, mm-hmm. or the arm's just going to keep going and rip it out, and now you've got a disconnected <laughs> seismometer on Mars. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So that's bad. Uh-huh. And you can't have a cable that's too stiff or that's going to flap in the wind or anything like that because then you get noise coupled into the seismometer through the cable oh my so goodness. there's a lot of engineering and testing that goes in and this is true of ground-based seismometers too right to you, how you connect the cable to the instrument and making sure that it doesn't couple noise in oh. not electrical but physical noise oh my gosh yeah this is a lot to think about this is why these crews are so large oh yeah and I'm I'm really curious if they're going to I don't know how strong the hammering motion is as the HP cubed instrument is going in but I'm curious if they're going to be able to get some interesting near service geophysics from that. Yeah, I mean it's basically like doing micro seismic, right? Uh yeah, I mean so it's a little it's a little tiny high frequency source and I believe this instrument is pretty decent at the high frequency still from what I saw at the meeting. Okay. And it's not that far the HP cubed is not that far away from the seismometer, obviously. Yeah, I mean, the arm is 2.4 meters long, yeah, so, so it can't be more than that away, really. Right. So there you go. That's awesome. Yeah. So awesome mission, and I just, I, we're going to, as soon as some results start coming from this, uh, we will be begging people to come on the show <laughs> and talk to us about them. Uh, absolutely. Well, we already suckered a whole bunch of people on from NASA, so... Hopefully yeah, someone there out go. there will talk to us. <laughs> and, you know, this, uh, I will point out, this mission is actually about two years late. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to launch in 2016. Uh, everybody was all excited about it, especially the seismologists, of course. And it didn't make its March launch window because the seismometer had a vacuum leak. Ugh. And by the time they got the vacuum leak fixed, there wasn't another good launch window until now, pretty much. Uh, there was a lot of fear that funding was going to get pulled in between. Mm-hmm. I imagine so. Because this did increase the cost. So 
initially it was going to be about a 675 million dollar mission and after the delay in retooling it came out to about 830 million mm-hmm. sounds like usual contractor <laughs> markups <laughs> <laughs> well it was, it was actually dismounted uh and put on a plane and brought back here to denver right i saw that it was that it had been stored in denver mm-hmm. right so lockheed martin has a huge facility here in denver uh, it was stored there. A lot of the work was done there on a lot of the instruments and the assembly. Yeah. So they did a lot of it not very far from me. I love it. Somebody walking around and being like, yeah, that's the closet we keep this Mars rover in. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, not rover. This Mars instrument that doesn't move around. <laughs> I, I remember seeing at some point a, uh, a, I think it was a, TV special or something on some satellites where they had made them and they were going to be launching and then the funding for the launch vehicle got pulled and they're sitting in like little cocoons uh, <laughs> all sealed up and mothballed perfectly good satellites waiting for somebody to have the money to launch them. oh my gosh that's terrible that's yeah. so terrible that's any lab you walk into though there's always something that someone didn't have the money to finish or that no one knows how to use and it's just sitting there and it's perfectly acceptable equipment right yep so the only other thing that was on insight that we haven't talked about are the name chips yes i was going to ask you what these things are i saw pictures of them what are these so you could sign up on a website which i did and (laughs) your name would be engraved on these chips (laughs) are you serious (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's awesome it was very small. Uh, so it was open up to you know anybody, any member of the public could go on this website and you would sign up for your name to be on the InSight mission. And the first round got almost a million names before the, when the first launch window was. They reopened it after the launch got pushed back and another 1.6 million names came oh in. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and you know it cost an insane amount of money to send anything to Mars. Mm-hmm. So these aren't like somebody's going to go up and unbolt the plaque and read these 2.4 million names. Right. So each letter is a thousandth of the width of a hair. Oh my gosh. So the silicon wafers that these are on, which there are two, are eight millimeters in diameter total. Oh, that's awesome. That's super cool. So they're a little bitty tiny, but... Someday, if anybody ever finds them and reads them, they'll see the name of 2.4 million nerds. <laughs> I love it. Graffiti. The, yep. The first graffiti on Mars. That's beautiful. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, this is real exciting. I can't wait till stuff starts to come online. Um, we should definitely hit up the uh, Lunar and Planetary Science Conference after this. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of awesome stuff coming out of it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be very hard to get into those talks. Yep, I imagine so. <laughs> but, I mean, that's that's pretty much all I've got, Shannon, unless you've got anything else. Yeah, no, it was just real exciting, as it always is. Um, I, the last time I got this excited to watch something was when uh, we landed on that comet, so that was pretty sweet, too. Um, so, yeah, I encourage everyone to stay abreast of it because watching Mission Control is your heart's in your throat the whole time and it's real great absolutely and i can't wait you know a lot of these missions uh curiosity 
uh, Pathfinder dating myself there. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Remember watching Pathfinder Land on July 4th. Uh, <laughs> yep. And uh, a lot of those mission teams put out books at some point afterwards. Like mm-hmm. once the mission is really well underway, uh, some of the team leads get together and write up some really nice books on what all went on. So I'm yeah, looking forward to reading true. those. Um, one more thing, too. I don't know if you saw the Onions headlines about... <laughs> Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> NASA catches glimpse of hard-charging Curiosity rover just before Insights communications go dark. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> With a hilarious um, picture <laughs> that they have taken. <laughs> They've taken one of the Insight photos and then Photoshopped the Curiosity rover coming at it. <laughs> so, yeah, you can link that one in the show notes, too. <laughs> I, I just pulled it up. I will definitely link it in the <laughs> yeah, show Yeah, that's real good. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> well, with that, I think it's time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. <laughs> I just realized that every time that you ring the cowbell, I like shake my shoulders back and forth like I'm. <laughs> <laughs> and no one can see it. It's real sad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this fun paper comes to us from listener Jonathan. Uh, yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> and it, it is paleo detectors searching for dark matter with ancient minerals. <laughs> um, so number one, since someone used the word ancient minerals, you know they're not geologists. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Right off the bat, this is a bunch of physicists, if you didn't didn't already know. <laughs> and I really appreciated, so Jonathan, when he sent this paper, said, I am going to pitch this at a low level so you can, <laughs> you can follow along, uh, which I really appreciate because we, we've heard a lot from Jonathan before. He's doing some really cool work. Uh, but I and you don't have backgrounds in... <laughs> dark matter and some of these physics topics. So he wrote up a little summary for us with some background that's not necessarily in the paper. Yeah. Saying that, you know, in physics, and I I knew about dark matter, and we have problems accounting for all of the matter in the universe. So we can only see about a 20th of the matter that we think is there. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, I didn't realize it was that low. (laughs) Right, and so... Some matter interacts with photons, so it'll emit something or absorb them, mm-hmm. and that's how we can figure out, you know, we can take spectra of things. Right. Uh, another way would be looking at gravitational interactions, so movement of bodies, and what turns out is gravity shows us a lot of matter that we can observe in no way. It appears to not interact with photons at all, hence dark matter. Right, exactly. Um because that the visible light way accounts for only 5%, so it's calculated by gravitational interactions. And so that is tons of stuff out there that we can't see. So how do you figure out where this stuff is? And he points out that uh, this is fortunate for the careers of many astronomers, I'm assuming including himself, <laughs> and yeah. that it's going to take a lot of grant money to figure out why. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so true, and it's really weird on a fundamental level when you think my gosh, we don't know about any of the universe. That's real creepy. Um, <laughs> but the point is this dark matter does interact somehow, 
right? I mean, you can see it in gravity. It's just not absorbing or emitting light. Um, so how can you do this? And it's all these different other types of particles. And obviously this one is fantastically named. <laughs> right. So it, the, the prevailing uh, candidate for this would be called the Weakly Interacting Massive Particle, or WIMP. <laughs> and I didn't know this, um, but Jonathan tells us, uh, which is so named because it was formulated as a competitor to its precursor, the Macho. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And so this paper talks about you've got heavy wimps and you got light wimps. <laughs> right. And the way that you're going to see if these things exist at all are with these huge underground tanks of stuff right because eventually one of these wimps has to interact with something and as soon as it interacts with something that something's going to put off light or heat it's going to put off an energy burst that says we interacted with this dark matter right and so that's what we're doing now to see if this stuff exists right so probabilistically it's going to have to hit a nucleus eventually yeah and when that nucleus recoils it releases some type of radiation characteristic to whatever that material is. Right, exactly. And so the problem is, <laughs> and this says this uh, in the paper, that this is an you know, extreme um, exercise in patience, is that you've just got this vat of something, and you're just sitting there waiting for something to happen. <laughs> and then you see something, and you have to rule out every possibility. Everything else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, one of the, the experiments that I know the most about was called Ice Cube. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a cubic, or a, a kilometer by a kilometer by a kilometer of ice in Antarctica that they're monitoring. That's unbelievable. So the only way that you can try to catch these, we've thought, is mm -hmm. by having this massive volume of material for interaction so that you might have a chance of detecting one before you retire. Right, yeah. It's all just probabilistic stuff, which is nuts to me. <laughs> because it, there's not, or, you know, there could be a lot, but we have to catch them having that chance collision. Right. And actually having an interaction. So you're depending on having a lot of things to have it happen over a short time scale. Short time scales, decades here. Right. And so how long have the longest detectors been in place? Do you know? Uh I don't know for sure. I would assume some of them probably 10 plus years, though. Right. Yeah, I would think on the order of, you know, 30 or 40 years at the most. So you've got that. But it, this dark matter isn't new. <laughs> this isn't a new thing. And so what these authors, Drukier et al., are suggesting is that why don't we use a paleo detector? So the, this dark matter has to have been interacting with lots of things over the time scale of the Earth, obviously. So what can we look at to see if there's any traces left behind? So not counting on those interactions immediately, but have these interactions with WIMPs and other nuclei been recorded anywhere? And so what are you going to look at? If you want to look at paleo anything, you got to look at rocks, man. Old rocks. Ancient minerals. Ancient minerals. I love it. What geologist let them write that? 
that hurts me so bad. I don't know. So That's just silly. <laughs> this totally turns the paradigm on its head of instead of having a large detector and short time, you're going to have a tiny detector and a massive amount of time. Probability right. still works either way. Right, exactly. But um, the problems here, which are many, I took notes. Hold on. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Uh, let me uh, lick my finger, get my notes out. Okay, there we go. Um, the problems here are, uh, this really isn't a new thing in terms of looking at minerals. I mean, we've talked about zircons before. So all kinds of interactions can happen on the, you know, atomic scale within a crystal. And it records all sorts of things. Um, and so this is real common. It's how we do fission track dating. So you bombard minerals with bunches of stuff and they leave behind basically these little scars and you can tell timing of events or radioactive decay and lots of other things. And so I say lots of other things because if you're going to use these paleo detectors to determine if they interacted with these wimps, you have to rule out all those lots of other things. <laughs> and a lot of these things manifest as what's called a crystal dislocation, right? So you get some big, heavy particle ripping through this nice, organized crystal lattice, uh -huh. and it tears things up a little bit, and you get dislocations formed of different varieties, point dislocations, line dislocations, and so on. Right, exactly. Um, so you get those dislocations, and you can have those hanging out there, and then you get healing of those dislocations, which is, you know, annealing rates. So you see these little healed scars. Um, and... This is not an unusual thing. This happens to all rocks. Uh, the most common one that you might be familiar with is, so you've got quartz, right? Quartz comes in a bunch of different colors. Those colors are all formed by, you know, quartz is SiO2, but you get all kinds of other stuff replacing silica in the lattice, and therefore you can get, you know, pink quartz and stuff like this, or amethyst, which is purple quartz. Um, but right. if you get smoky quartz, that smoky color, so the dark color of quartz is caused by radiation and it's knocking these little nuclei out of spaces. And so that's actually what makes that dark color. So, I mean, you get a whole, a whole array of quartz just by radiating it. So how do you know what's radi irradiating it? So that's a problem because that happens. There's radiation all over the place, right? And it affects all the crystals that are around it. So you have to find something that either hasn't been affected or you have to know the effects of that radiation in terms of these little scarring that it does on the crystal lattice. You have to know it really well so you can discount it. Right. And so in this paper, they look at different crystals as well as some techniques to try to get around some of these limitations. Right. So that radioactive decay, like as soon as I read the abstract, I thought, oh, how are they going to get around that? Right. Because we use that all the time. So that's one of the things that they talk about um, as being a problem. And actually, they kind of solved this one a little easier than I thought. And it's basically because we have a really good idea about radioactive decay. You have decay, alpha decay, and then beta and gamma decay. And so basically the beta and gamma decay leaves tiny little, tiny little length. So what we're basically looking at is the length of how much these, whatever you're talking about, interacts with these nuclei, right? So it leaves like a little scar is how I think of it. And how long are those scars? So 
most radioactive decay doesn't leave too many scars, and then uh, other radioactive decay, this alpha decay, leaves huge scars, which would be bigger than even, like, the really big wimps interacting with it. So what I took from this is that you could probably get rid of radioactive decay. You could figure out that signal and discount that. Um, but there's other stuff. <laughs> Some of it that we actually use in geology, like cosmogenic nucleides that interact with rocks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> so we use this as a dating technique itself <laughs> because if you've got a rock at the surface, it's obviously getting bombarded by cosmic rays. And so if you're looking at these old experiments that you were just talking about, um, you know, these big vats of whatever deep within the earth, they're deep within the earth for a reason, and that's to get away from the effects of you know, cosmogenic radiation. Um, we use beryllium-10 is one thing that we use when we're looking at rocks because that interacts with the nucleus within the crystals, and you can tell how long a rock has been exposed at the surface based on its percentage of beryllium-10. And, um, I mean, that's a geomorphological dating technique that we use, so you definitely can't use rocks at the surface <laughs> because it's just... it's too much, you know, scarring, you wouldn't be able to tease out a wimp signature within that. So you can't use stuff at the surface. You have to use stuff rocks deep down, which luckily we have a lot of those. Right. And, you know, I'm trying to remember, I don't remember if it was at OU or at Penn State where I saw somebody giving a talk on doing dating with this cosmogenic radiation method, and they needed to know something like what the average flux was now. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, Apparently, there's some interaction with water that you can do some chemistry on the water after a long-term exposure and figure mm -hmm. out what's going on right? Uh, yeah. or what the flux is. So they filled a uh, just like a camping mattress with water and left it on top of a mountain for like a year. <laughs> <laughs> they went back that's, and got it. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, but if you followed, followed the show... Uh, so that's great. And you can do that interaction, which is stuff at the surface now, but you also know that the sun has changed over time <laughs> and we're talking about geologic timescales here, you know, on the order of a billion years is what we're looking at for this dark matter interaction. Um, so you have to make a lot of assumptions. You basically have to model what you think, you know, the surface cosmogen or the cosmogenic stuff <laughs> was occurring as the sun changed over its lifetime. Right. So neutrino flux, you know, we can measure that now, but we don't know what it was in geologic, in the geologic past. So right. Exactly. Cause there's definitely uncertainty. Huge. Right. And so neutrino interaction is another thing, but before I, <laughs> before I get off of this surface, surface cosmogenic problem, I love it because they say in the, in the <laughs> paper that, well, that's fine. We don't need stuff on the surface. And some of these other, you know, large scale modern WIMP detectors are as deep as two kilometers. And they kind of laugh at that and say, we have ultra deep boreholes, <laughs> right. which I think is hilarious. That's not a thing. Like, that's not, a, you would never say that in geology. <laughs> ultra deep boreholes. <laughs> um, so some of their rocks came from 12 kilometer deep boreholes. But the problem here, again, is if you're going to use these rocks from these, as I hand quote, ultra deep boreholes, 
um, you can't let them be exposed at the surface for very long because immediately you're going to start to get this cosmogenic nuclei interaction. And now what are you going to do? Well, and not only that, those rocks weren't always 12 kilometers down. Yeah, that's my that's my big starred and highlighted thing. Um, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the other two interaction things they talk about, which is also why a lot of these detectors are really deep underground, um, is neutrons and neutrinos. And these are actually pretty hard to get around, but the advances we've made in microscopy, and I don't, I'm not talking about optical microscopy. I'm talking about really nanoscale microscopy. Um, is helping us better model what these interactions do on a crystal at a scale. And so therefore we can negate the effects of the neutrons and the neutrinos. And it all has to do with how much these little things get bounced out of their original place, right? The length of these tracks. Right. So it seems like, we can use these really weird microscopy techniques, which we should totally have someone that's way smarter than us talk about, um, like helium and atomic force microscopy and stuff like that. Um, and also <laughs> using lasers along with it. And this is really cool because some of the things they talk about in here aren't necessarily new, but they're definitely stuff that we use um, at OU, which is where you have a, a little cube of a rock and you sit there and you look at it with the microscope and then you ion mill off you take this focused ion beam the fib and you ion mill a layer off and so you can sort of 3d model this cube of rock um and so that's what they're talking about using those techniques to look at these potential wimp tracks Right. And so one of the other cool things is, you know, we can sense over maybe yearly, you know, orbit around the sun time scales with some of our large detectors here. But these geologic recorders could go back to galactic years. So, you know, the, the 250 million years it takes us to go around the center of the galaxy. This is so cool. I'd never thought about this at all. And so there's modeled areas that are denser in dark matter. And, you know, if you're sitting there watching your tank of water two kilometers below the ground, like <laughs> where you are, and you're not going to be able to look at that solar system rotation um, like you could if you're looking at an ancient mineral. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's so funny. <laughs> um, so you can't, yeah, this is really, that's a really cool thing that I hadn't thought about is trying to find, so they're trying to target rocks of a specific age that will have been formed since Earth has gone through these particularly dark matter rich parts of the galaxy. Right. I mean, because Earth is only about 20 galactic years old. That's weird. Uh, and <laughs> in, a, in a very satisfying coincidence of numbers, the sun is 42 galactic years. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> That's awesome. I never thought about that till this paper. That's really neat. Yeah, certainly not something scale. I've ever considered in, right. in time scales. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we talk about, well, we're going to talk about like orbital parameters in relation to looking at 
paleoclimate cyclicity, but it's like, wow, that's these galactic timescale parameters. I wonder if those are recorded. That's real interesting. But I mean, that's what, that's what we're trying to, or that they would hope to achieve um, as well. And I also want you to try to pronounce um, the name of this mineral that they're using in some of these. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> Just because there's one, two, three, four, four um, non-vowels. <laughs> <laughs> in a row. Consonants. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> Neuschwani night. Oh, mineralogist. <laughs> I know. I love it because Jonathan asked a follow-up question to us. You know, and he's like, Shannon, I'm sure you know about this. You know, what one would we want to target to look at, you know, this galactic time scale? I don't know anything about minerals, Jonathan. I'm a sedimentologist. I work with five <laughs> minerals. Like, basically only magnetite and hematite. I don't care about anything else. <laughs> so I Ouch. had to look up, obviously, Neuschwani night because I don't, I don't know what it is. It's a manganese silicate oxide. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah, just so you know. <laughs> um, but they also target what they call relatively pure rocks, which are um, marine evaporites like halite or epsomite, and then ultra-basic rocks like olivine or nickel bischoffite. Yep. Right. <laughs> um, and they've done a lot of modeling using these rocks, but obviously they say that now they're looking at, um, you know, working out empirical relationships with these rocks but your point earlier is a big problem right oh yeah <laughs> so the mineral you want to use is good and they actually say that minerals with hydrogen in them sort of protect against these uh, neutron recoils when you're bombarding it with neutrons neutrinos the recoil effect that you get from hitting these little nuclei um, can leave big tracks but hydrogen sort of buffers that um, I'm not using buffer in a chemical way at all before right. anyone like it tries to correct me. Okay, more in the uh, the the dash pot. Exactly, kind of way. Yeah. exactly. Um, so what you're targeting there is really important, and just like we said, it needs to be deep in the earth. That's important, but just like you also pointed out, you have to know the burial history of these rocks, and that gets really hard. For rocks that are, you know, greater than 50 million years old. This gets really hard. Because if you've yeah. come near the surface, you've doubled and tripled your probability of getting these, you know, cosmogenic interactions and everything like that that are going to junk up your rock. So. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious to see if this technique gets applied and with what kind of success. Yeah. I'm real excited, actually. I got... I was like the first two physics pages I was not not on board and then they started talking about rocks which I can tell you've already glazed over once you got to page three <laughs> yeah, so I had the exact opposite reaction I thought all the physics part was really cool and then, <laughs> then mineral like, name oh, mineral name Neuschwani night <laughs> yeah um so yeah that was that was really neat and this one definitely made me want to look at all the the previous work that had been done too so this is something to um this is something I'm going to watch because I think this is really cool. <laughs> and it's a really, 
interesting way. I like to think that maybe one of these authors was just like staring at a rock or he randomly went to some geology talk and was like, hmm, seems legit. <laughs> yeah. So Jonathan, thanks for sending this paper in. Yeah. Yeah. It was excellent. And thank you very much for your um, primer that you wrote yes. for us too. <laughs> much appreciated. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you have a paper that you would like us to talk about, or you have a particular ancient mineral that you think <laughs> might be useful in this study, uh-huh. we would love to hear about it. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, send us your ancient mineral name at show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And you can come hang out with us in the Slack chat room, uh, the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. And if you would like to support our podcast and help us make many more to come, you can go to patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. So is your ancient mineral name kind of like your Star Trek name? <laughs> your first first letter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then you add it to the end of it. Yeah. <laughs>